H E News, episode number nine. This week on Health Empowerment News with Croft Woodruff, we have a very special guest interview with Dr. Chris Shaw, PhD, talking about the safety of vaccine adjuvants. Welcome back to Health Empowerment with Croft Woodruff. We're here in the studio in Vancouver. Good morning, Croft. Good morning, Andrew. And today we've got a very special guest, actually our first guest that we've had here on Health Empowerment, and his name is Dr. Chris Shaw, and he is currently the principal investigator of a lab within the Department of Ophthalmology Medicine at UBC, and an associate professor and associate member within the Departments of Physiology, Experimental Medicine, and the Graduate Program in Neuroscience. He began post-secondary education in California with a Bachelor of Science in Biology, from the University of California, Irvine, continued his education at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem with a Master of Science in Physiology and a PhD in Neurobiology. He spent several years here in Canada at Dalhousie University, first as a postdoctorate fellow and then as a research associate before beginning his affiliation with UBC. His research over the years has focused on two key areas, neuroplasticity and neuropathology. The current research focus of his laboratory is on ALS, or Lou Gehrig's disease, Parkinsonism, dementia complex. Most ongoing studies here target various facets of this neurodegenerative disease through his mouse model using an environmental neurotoxin called Cycad circinalis. So what do you think, Croft? <laughs> well, we are going to be dealing here with uh, what I consider to be an intellectual giant. Uh, this man has got more... I would say he's got more guts than a government mule when he deals with science and also deals with the politics of things that go on in this world, particularly, well, Olympics, uh, Winter Olympics, to be precise, here in uh, beautiful British Columbia. Well, his research into these neurodegenerative diseases have led him into a possible vaccine connection. And, of course, he's also a very outspoken critic of the, of the Vancouver Winter Olympics. Yeah, and speaking of uh, neurotoxins, I mean, uh, you can focus on things like aluminum, which are in many vaccines, as well as uh, mercury, which is still in some childhood vaccines and certainly is in the H1N1 vaccine, which is pretty well under discussion today. So we've got Chris Shaw on the line, and Chris is a expert on neuroplasticity out of UBC. Can you give us a little bit of your background, Chris? I'm a neurobiologist at, at the university. Um, I study neurological diseases such as Alzheimer's, Lou Gehrig's, and Parkinson's disease. And I've been engaged in that work for about the 20 years I've been at UBC and have published extensively in those areas on the, the origins and uh, early um, stages of the disease, disease development. And a lot and of your work has focused on vaccines, well, very actually, not not a lot. Some some recent work is, has focused on vaccines. I've started to look. We are starting to look for uh, causal factors for things like Lou Gehrig's disease. And you may know that there aren't there aren't many clusters of Lou Gehrig's disease in the world. The cluster is a large number of people expressing a particular uh, disease in a, in a 
constrained geographical space and time. And there's only one that that we've known about until now, and that's on the island of Guam. So our our work has been focused on what's called Guamanian ALS and what the factors are. And it seems to be a foodborne toxin. So we've pretty much identified what we think is the factor. We can take that factor. Uh, it's It's a particular molecule. We can give it to mice, and they will now go and Want to develop an ALS-like outcome? Mm-hmm. This, um, there this was, is the protein molecule, I gather. No, it's not actually. It's a, it's a, it's a it's a lipid. Um, a fat a lipid molecule. Okay. It's a fat molecule. It's 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 called a sterile glucoside. It looks like a sterile molecule, mm-hmm. and it has a glucose attached at one position. Now, the reason we followed up the vaccine stuff is we were looking for any other clusters of Lou Gehrig's disease, and we came across uh, Gulf War syndrome, which has a higher much higher than average incidence of Lou Gehrig's disease and surprisingly in a much younger population. And the epidemiology done by various people in the States and elsewhere pointed the finger at the anthrax vaccine. And when we saw that, we started to wonder if there was something in the vaccine that could be a problem. And then we started to dissect the vaccine. Uh, The company Bioport would not give us the vaccine to study. So we started looking at the ingredients. And one of the things that jumped out at us was the presence that was admitted of aluminum hydroxide, a fairly standard vaccine adjuvant for many vaccines. And the suspicion had also been out there in the literature with some work done in the States that there was also squalene, which is a a precursor to cholesterol that had not, to our knowledge, been been thoroughly tested. And the the suspicion was that that was also in the anthrax vaccine, at least in some batches, uh, the people who had received uh, tested positive for antibodies for squalene. So we did a study in which we looked at both of those adjuvants in colony mice, and these were adult male colony mice, the same age, uh, the same strain, and sufficiently powered to actually be able to see any differences that they occurred. We injected equivalent to body weight doses of either aluminum or squalene or both, and with obviously with a control group, and then looked at the looked at the mice over an extended period of time to see what happened. And the mice that received the aluminum showed motor neuron deficits uh, in behavior, and on histology showed massive motor neuron loss in the spinal cord and the motor cortex, and what's called neuroinflammation of various kinds of supporting cells that were that were. Uh, elevated and markers of cell death and things of that nature. And the squalene group showed uh, other evidences of pathology, but a cognitive decline in, in, in the mice that were treated with squalene. So we had demonstrated, at least in this one study, that that mice, given the adjuvants in the same body, body weight uh, ratio that, that humans would have received with just two vaccines, were in fact showing some of the symptoms associated with Gulf War syndrome, either cognitive or, or motor dysfunctions. Hmm. So that's pretty much where we, we've been up until this point. We did the study again with just aluminum, and multiple injections got much the same sort of thing with more cognitive decline this time, and much of the histology is still pending, and that's, uh, that, that work is still ongoing. Are these long-term effects, like the they cognitive decline are, in that we would see in humans? They uh, Up to the point where we sacrifice the animals, they seem to be permanent. Now, of course, one could argue that if you waited longer that they wouldn't be, but up to the point where we had, had to terminate the experiment, they were. And they were progressive. That's to say that they got worse over time. Um, and I have to emphasize that it, in fact, was a long-term study for mice. It went on for about half a year, which mm-hmm. is a long time for a mouse. A lot of the studies that look only the next day or a week later or two weeks later might not see neuro, neurological changes because those processes may be very slow. And we... We believe that in neurological disease in general, that the, these diseases emerge over, over the span of years, if not decades, and they don't happen overnight. Well, and you have uh, 
excuse me for interrupting, but you have uh, areas like Okinawa where there's a lot of aluminum in the soil and presumably in the food that is grown on that soil. Have you ever looked into that sort of thing where uh, people are exposed to aluminum through their dietary choices? There, there is a lot of that. Some of, some of the literature, uh, there's certainly some experimental studies that suggest that high levels of aluminum in water can have impacts that, that resemble Alzheimer's disease in rats. Uh, certainly, there have been studies in, in human populations that suggested the same thing. I don't think the data are particularly inclusive. And it's important to realize that the, the route of absorption may be the key, uh, key factor here. Uh, drinking, drinking or eating aluminum, which we all do because it's a very common element in the, in the Earth's crust, and putting it through your digestive system is nowhere near the same as injecting it into your body. Well, uh, that, just, <laughs> that's the point I made with regard to this business of, oh, you know, they say, oh, well, you, in this case, it was to do with mercury and tuna fish. Well, you don't inject tuna fish into your bloodstream. Uh, no, you don't, exactly. And you don't, and, you, and, yeah, and sure, yes, you, you probably get squalene from various sources, but you don't, and, and of course, your, your body makes it, but you don't inject it yeah. and essentially park it in, in, in a particular place. And I mean, that's and what you, our digestive system is all about, is to censor uh, what we put into the body. But you well, can't do is, it, you know, when you bypass and put stuff right bypass. into the tissue, look out. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're very good at sequestering and excreting uh, aluminum. That, that, that's yeah. the, we, we have biochemical pathways that do that, as do most organisms, and we're good at it. And those organisms that are, for example, plants raised in high aluminum soils, if they have very high citrate cycle levels, they will do far better than plants that have very low citrate uh, levels. And so it, it, there, there's probably a range across the human population. Some of us do it better than others. But the fact is that mostly that's not, not a problem. That could change with aging. That could, there, there could be effect of gender. That could be, I mean, obviously there could be a body burden dose. If, you, if you're an extremely high, uh, if, if you're exposed to extremely high levels, that could change. But probably for most of us, that it, it's not an issue. But again, that's not the same as parking it inside your, in your body by injection. Mm-hmm. Uh, so root of administration is, is key. And keep in mind that, you know, while when, when Health Canada or other agencies or the drug industry says, well, you know, it's, it's such a small amount. Well, yes, it is a small amount, but keep in, that, that's, that's exactly the point. That's why they put the adjuvants in there in the first place, because that small amount of adjuvant stimulates your immune system, and they know that fully well. So the idea that it cannot impact human cells is ridiculous on the face of it, because they know it very well it does, and that's exactly why they put it in. So the idea that you're stimulating your immune system with a tiny amount of aluminum, true, and yet somehow you, magically you can't impact your nervous system with the same amount of aluminum, which is now free to go pretty much anywhere once it's past your uh, past uh, the lumen of your gut is just pretty much absurd, uh, and it, and it does. And there have been a number of studies that demonstrated that that aluminum in, in fact will show up inside your neurons inside your brain, and you can do that with morin stain and various other stains that that will will demonstrate that very clearly. And there's a lot of association in Alzheimer's disease patients. Uh, work from a from a scientist in New York City who that that, that who has demonstrated that the the tauopathies, neurofibrillary tangles that are found in the in the brains of Alzheimer's victims are often associated with deposits of aluminum. Okay, I'm going to ask you a question about cooking food in aluminum uh, pots and pans. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that was in our family. Uh, I can remember, and this goes back years ago when my my mother, I was about six years old at the time, bought uh, this wherever aluminum. And over time, I noticed it was really pitted, you know. So where in the hell is that going, you know, when you're cooking, especially acidic foods and this sort of thing? And I don't think uh, members of my family are exactly dummies, although some people might point a finger at me, but that's another issue. We're looking at things like uh, cooking in uh, stainless steel, cooking in... Uh, 
ceramic ware and stuff like that, uh, obviously uh, one should be a little more careful perhaps about what they choose to bear their food in. Right. You know, it's still going through the digestive tract that way. It's not a toxic shock as in a, in a vaccine. It, well, it, it, it's not. And, 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 and sure, I mean, I think a lot of people have gone away from cooking in aluminum, aluminum ware for that reason. I, I know the Canadian military no longer cooks, in, uh, cooks their stuff in, uh, in aluminum, aluminum containers just because of the possibility. It's a precautionary principle. You, there, there is some anecdotal evidence and some scientific evidence that there's something to this, and therefore, why take a risk and, and, and risk long-term, uh, long-term Precisely, emissions? yeah. The mainstream media is portraying squalene and thermosterol and uh, other adjuvants as safe. They're saying that they've been tested and that they're commonly used in vaccines. And they also say that the squalene is naturally produced in your body, which, of course, it is. And what would you say to people who are, who are listening to this and are hearing the other side of the story? How would you convince them that injecting squalene into your body is not a good idea? Well, I, I haven't seen the, the data on, on, on squalene, uh, the, that which I've seen going back a few years. And I, I, I knew that it was in, in use in some European vaccines. Uh, but I wasn't aware until the H1N1 that they were putting it into North American vaccines. So my my recollection of the squalene data uh, that had been done in, in animals was that it was fairly toxic, and it, it was so problematic that they weren't weren't licensing it in North America. So I was a little surprised to see it in the H1N1, and that's why aluminum had been the the adjuvant of choice for a long time in North American vaccines. And the problems, of course, associated with that, as, as we had demonstrated in our 2007 paper. Um, but still, the, the, the notion that they're now adding the second adjuvant, uh, I, again, without having seen, the, without having seen any literature, I, I, can't, I can't really comment on it. But all I can say is that what the company itself has produced is not sufficient to judge the safety of the vaccine. The animal studies are, are pathetic, to say the very least. Uh, they would not pass muster at any university in terms of uh, quality. You, you, you couldn't get a master's degree based on this. Hmm. Uh, the, the, the list of things wrong with the animal studies is endless, um, and, and including, among other things, what, what they call power analysis. They don't, they don't have the study sufficiently powered to actually determine whether or not any, of it, any adverse actions are actually occurring or not. Well, what kind of animals are they? Uh, They're using ferrets. Ferrets, um, yeah. Nothing particularly wrong with using ferrets as a model. I don't. Well, I have no problem with ferrets other than the fact that, unlike uh, humans, ferrets can make their own vitamin C. That would be one thing. Um, and, of course, ferrets are not a standard neuro, uh, neurological disease model. They have been used, but they're in some unique circumstances, certainly not at the moment. And the problem with that, of course, is that the thing you're worried about in the vaccines, the adjuvants, among other things. Well, you've got the squalene and... Squalene and, and, and the uh, aluminum, and so those are things oh, that... Oh, there's aluminum in these vaccines. Uh, no, there's, there's not, actually. No, uh, apparently, no. Apparently not. But in, in standard vaccines, there is. Yeah. Of course, if, you're, if you were testing for those, the standard animal models would be rats or mice. So they've used ferrets, which, which in principle is fine, but they've underpowered the study. They've used six per treatment group. And that is probably below the level at which you could detect significance if it were there. Um, How many animals you would want at least, what, 12? I would 12? guess a power analysis would be about 12, yeah. yeah. Um, and you'd add more for mortality so you didn't uh, you mm. didn't lose numbers during the study. And, of course, you'd want it to be a fairly longitudinal study. You'd want to control age and, and gender of the, of the ferrets, and they don't seem to do that, or at least they don't report it. And then it appears, or at least they don't report, that they've done any behavioral analyses or any histology. Again, when you're looking at neurobiological 
uh, impacts, uh, at least the potential for those, you'd certainly want to be studying all kinds of behaviors, both motor and cognitive behaviors, and you'd want to do it over time. And then, you, of course, you'd want to sacrifice your animals and go inside the brains and look for evidence of cell death. They don't do that. So they essentially have nothing. They've, they've got, and, and of the three treatment groups, I should mention, they don't have a control. They have the complete vaccine with the adjuvant. They've got the H1N1 protective antigen component alone. And they have the adjuvant alone, which is the squalene, the ASO3. But they don't have a non-vaccine group. Yeah, well, what about this? I'm thinking of Gardasil particularly, where you're looking at three consecutive shots of the Gardasil vaccine to prevent HPV-triggered cervical cancer. And 275, is it micrograms or milligrams of aluminum per shot? Uh, I think it's, it's... I believe the amount of aluminum per shot is about uh, 0.83. I can't, I can't remember the... the yeah, I think it was but. 225 micrograms of aluminum, and with three shots, that would be uh, 675 micrograms of aluminum in total. Right. Uh, that's a hell of a lot of aluminum. It uh, could be a hell of a lot of aluminum. And yeah. uh, the other thing to mention by the, by the H1N1, of course, is it has thimerosal in it. Yeah. Which I thought we had wisely gotten past in, in this country. In, in the no, Gardasil? No. No, in the H1N1. Uh, no, no, not the H1N1. I, I thought we'd gotten past uh, the, the, the thimerosal thing. Yeah, but no, they've Health shoved Canada, it back in. And, Health Canada was yeah. not letting it be an eye drop, so why yeah. would you put it in a shot again? Right. And here's something else, too. Uh, I was looking at a study that came out around 1994. I think the results were uh, cited uh, in the uh, New Zealand Medical Journal around May of 1994, and this fellow by the name of Classen of Classen Immunotherapies. He used to be with the uh, uh, Centers for Disease Control. I guess he's a medical doctor, and uh, he he contends that uh, that there these vaccines are all being doing the wrong way, anyways. But he he also did a study uh, commissioned by the New Zealand government regarding the success of uh, of a um, in this case the hepatitis B vaccine that they were giving. Again, it was grade six uh, students. And he reported that they had a 60% increase in the incidence of, of uh, insulin-dependent juvenile onset diabetes. In other words, uh, the vaccines should be triggering attack on the uh, insulin-producing cells of the pancreas. Right. Um, have you seen anything like that? I haven't, no. Yeah. I'm not aware of that. Yeah, if you, if you go to a class in immunotherapies, uh, you might find that interesting. Uh, C-L-A-S-S-E-N. That's his name, J. Bartholomew Classen. Uh, he and his son are okay. they're based in uh, in um, in Baltimore, Maryland. But if you punch that in, you, know, you you can get him on the net and get to his website. He's got a very interesting concepts, and uh, it um, you know it's worth following up. I think. Okay, I agree. So the vaccine for pregnant women has arrived, and it's unattenuated. Uh, the question is why is why isn't everybody getting an unattenuated vaccine? Do unattenuated vaccines or unattenuated? Sorry. Do they do they work as effectively as the well? That's that's the that's the 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 claim from the drug company is that the unadjuvanted forms of the vaccine are recommended for pregnant women, uh, which suggests they're still concerned with the impact of the uh, either squalene or uh, other compounds on on uh, the fetus. Um, but they claim that, the, that both both forms work equally well. Hmm. That's really good news for a woman who uh, is probably pregnant but hasn't had the test to determine 
that she is pregnant and now she'll go and get the uh, vaccine. Yes. Well, the problem the problem comes back to the animal studies where they again they had the, remember they had the, there are the three treatment groups of the ferrets and again it's impossible to judge uh, the safety of those data because they don't provide them. But they they do talk about how the animals responded in in, in response to an H1N1 um, uh, viral stress, and what they say is that the the animals vaccinated with the complete vaccine containing the adjuvant survived, and the ones that only had the uh, non-adjuvanted form all died. So in the ferrets, the non-adjuvanted form was not effective against preventing disease. So we can assume the ones that died died of a deficiency of uh, mercury and squalene. No, I think we can assume that the, the, the yeah yeah exactly the, the deficiency of the, the adjuvants is what caused their death. Um, but so that that. I mean, the reason you do animal studies is to predict what's going to happen in the humans, and that's the entire purpose of phase one trials. And so now they're based on their phase one trials, which should have told them that the non-adjuvanted form will not work. They are now saying, well, the non-adjuvanted form is perfectly fine for pregnant women. I'm, I'm, I'm not understanding where, where they came from with that. Well, one of the things that gets me is that, you know, we supposedly the vaccine – uh, couldn't be developed uh, before the outbreak uh, manifests itself, in this case the H1N1, and the infectious agent or virus was analyzed, and therefore a vaccine could then be developed. Well, if, if, if this uh, is a natural mutating virus, as uh, some are claiming, how come the three pharmaceutical companies patented the vaccines, uh, at least three pharmaceutical giants patented the vaccines for the coming pandemic? long before it appeared on the scene. I mean, this is clairvoyance of the first degree. You've got big, what's it, Baxter filed a swine flu vaccine patent a year ahead of the outbreak. Uh, then you've got another company, Mediimmune, back in 2008. And then Novartis supplied for a, a swine flu patent on November the 6th of 2006. You know, I mean, uh, uh, three years ago. So uh, how, could, how can they do this? It's uh, it really beyond belief. Well, it's it's clairvoyance. It's like uh, shorting uh, American Airlines and United uh, Airlines stock uh, on September 10th, I suspect. Uh, there's, well, there's which, just, just good luck. Which brings a point that's often drawn to my attention uh, by a fellow that does a lot of research and passes it on to me. He says, uh, you know, if they, if they buy into, uh, you know, 9-11, they'll buy into everything or anything, you know. Yeah. Without, well, dig- without digressing too much, uh, anybody that knows that the U.S. Air Force is mandated to be in, in the air within a matter of minutes after a plane is off course, what in the hell was going on in 9-11? Well, the, the, I think what it, what it, what it, the, the point of similarity without going too much into what really happened in 9-11 is that we have been conditioned in, in the society to be afraid. Mm-hmm. And 9-11 certainly hammered that home to a lot of people and made us a very fearful population. Yeah, the ultimate and scaremongering. And it's ultimate and scaremongering. And what you see the media doing with the H1N1 and before that with Gardasil and before that with bird flu and before that with SARS is they are really ramping up the fear quotient and getting people essentially hysterical that if they don't get the vaccine, they're going to die. You mentioned the, the, uh, the SARS, the super acute respiratory syndrome for SARS. Worldwide, they had just under about 8,000 cases and... The number of deaths were approximately just under 800 anyway, and uh, then it disappeared and without a vaccine. And yes, we don't, there we don't are, get vaccinated against SARS. Yeah, and of course, the, uh, some people are saying, well, it was perhaps a genetically modified virus that we're looking at. 
but uh, I, I saw at least one suggestion that one of the reasons why they had uh, so uh, many deaths, in fact, half of those deaths could have been avoided had the physicians uh, remembered how to really treat a fever. And uh, that brings up an issue about, you know, uh, how, do you do, how do you kill viruses? And what's a fever all about? Isn't that actually nature's ma- method of dealing with a fever, is, uh, with a virus, pardon me, is to develop a fever? Uh, isn't it a fact that all mammals develop a fever? to deal with viral infection. That's my understanding, and so I, I think you're quite right. I think that uh, we, we may be over-managing some of these diseases yeah. and suppressing natural, natural means of uh, controlling uh, well, viral I, I, and bacterial proliferation. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I was doing some uh, stuff looking at this HIV business, and I asked a, a medical doctor who had a website, and I can't remember. I've been trying to retrack it down because I was completely blown away. So I emailed him. I said, well, what, why, why do we develop viruses? Or rather, I'm sorry, why do we develop fevers? And he said, to kill viruses. And I came right back. And then why is that not the case with HIV? I haven't received a reply from him yet. For the seasonal flu, the annual deaths are around 5,000 to 8,000. Is that true in Canada? Uh, if you're asking me, I, I don't know. Okay, that's what they're saying in the, in the media. And if there was a microscope over the seasonal flu last year that there is over the swine flu this year, we would be, instead of looking at one or two deaths or a week, uh, we'd be looking at 20 to 30 deaths during the seasonal flu season every day. So that, that kind of puts it into perspective. I think it does. What I understand from what I've seen in the media and what I've seen rep- commented on by, the, uh, by various doctors is that... For some people, it is it is a severe flu. For many people, it is not. Uh, for many people, they don't even know they have it. Uh, the the severity seems to be, in terms of mortality, seems to be less than the average flu, and therefore the the hype about it seems to be, and from many perspectives, seems to be not warranted. And so then one has to wonder why this hype has been has been generated. Is it just the the media seeing a great story and, and deciding to, to to beat on it for all it's worth? Is it the drug companies with probably remarkable profits on a drug that for which they cannot be held liable, uh, or is it a kind of combination of things? Yeah, that's, uh, an, that's I, an, I, I, simply, I simply don't know. Yeah, yeah that's um, another issue. This business of uh, you know, if these things are as safe as uh, they'd have us believe, why is there no uh, liability insurance available for these manufacturers? Uh, they've been immunized against the liability in the United States just recently, and of course. We now know that there isn't a uh, underwriter that will offer liability insurance to the drug companies for their for their vaccines and their other drugs. And then we find out. I saw it in the Toronto Sun a few, I guess, a couple of weeks ago now, where the federal government says to anybody who asks, "Well, you're on your own," and so the onus is going to be on the person who administers the vaccine. Yeah, the 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 claim is that that they didn't. They, they needed the liability protection because they were doing it in such a rush that that they they just couldn't take that risk if if uh, under those kind of conditions of of, of speed um, and and to some extent that may be true but again when you see the the lack of science that's actually been done it's it's actually frightening um, at least to me and when you also look at the treatment groups that have been screened clinically. Uh, they have screened the 18 to 60-year-old group but have very little data on people older than that. They have very little data on people younger than that. Uh, no data, to, to my knowledge, on pregnant women. So I think there, 
you know, a, a lot of people who are going to end up getting this vaccine, in fact, the groups that are now recommended to get it, are currently still outside the zone of people who have been clinically tested uh, to, to establish uh, safety. And so I'm, I'm quite concerned about that. And in fact, so, Andrew, we're, flying, doing, we're flying blind on this whole thing. It does appear to be true. So, Andrew, what I'm doing is I'm sending you the link right now to the, uh, the Glasgow SmithKline product data sheet that was uh, apparently submitted on October 21st this year. And if you have a way to put it online for your listeners, or at least to read it out for your listeners, they, they can, they can uh, certainly take a look at it themselves. If anyone uh, has a scientific background, they can go through it and see uh, where the gaps in the, in the safety aspect are. And again, I can tell you unequivocally that it would not pass muster here at UBC in terms of a scientific document, certainly not without all the primary data included. Oh, that's and great. That's I'll the, put it on the, the, stats, the stats alone would fail. I'll so, put it on the show notes of the, on the show at foodsornotdrugs.com. That would be great because, yeah, it's, I, I think it's everything may be exactly as they say, but then they would have to demonstrate it and they simply don't demonstrate it in this document. I'm assuming this is the same document that is the the foundation on which Health Canada uh, is advising the health minister, uh, both federally and uh, at, the, at the provincial level. Um, frankly, if this is the document they're using, uh, I'm not. I'm not reassured. It's very interesting because you know, like the Vancouver Sun has uh, really uh, ramped up uh, the attack against uh, people who question the vaccine safety, particularly in the connection between uh, vaccines uh, and mercury and uh, and autism and other uh, learning. The problems that uh, children are manifesting. And uh, it's just amazing that they, instead of dealing with science, they deal in character assassination, you know, and what kind of journalism is that? Uh, not good. Not good. Uh, so, I'm, yeah, I, 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 I've always maintained with our studies, we, we did not set out to debunk vaccination or to deal with vaccination in no. general. And that's still not my intention. I'm not knowledgeable enough to do that. No. Uh, all I do in my work is look at the impact of certain toxins on the nervous system, and I do it in context to neurological diseases in general, and have done it in context to vaccine adjuvants recently. And what we see is, is disturbing and in an animal model context. Therefore, you would think other people would go out there and do the same study, and they can tell me why I'm wrong and why I did it. I did the study incorrectly, and I used the wrong dose or the wrong route of administration, or analyzed my data improperly. That's what science is all about. In the absence of that, I don't know if anyone else has contrary data. I uh, was drawn to uh, uh, articles in the Huffington Post, specifically. Uh, I guess you could call it an essay that was done by uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And of course, he's a lawyer. And he's taken up uh, this whole issue of autism and the connection between uh, some vaccines. And uh, interestingly enough, you find in there about the lawsuits against the vaccine manufacturers uh, that are being won. And the awards are, are running into, uh, I guess now, hundreds of millions of dollars. And we're not hearing anything about that in the mainstream media. It's unbelievable. No, you know, we talk about news. <laughs> if that isn't news, what is? I agree. I agree. Well, the, the mainstream media are falling down in a number of ways. They, they also uh, don't do a particularly good job with with the, the Olympic issue, as well. And and we all know that this. You know, we we've known from the last week how much it's going to cost us all, 
Uh, we now know that the economic forecasts were uh, ridiculously overinflated uh, for the positive benefits of the games by by about a hundred times, and and the, the supposed the eleven billion dollar windfall that the province was going to get is now under one one billion, and against the against the uh, the enormous costs, and most of the media really haven't done much with that. Yeah, they basically it, it's it's too late. It's done. The money's spent. Yeah, it's it's, it's it's as if they don't care. Yeah, we're digressing a bit, but that uh, little mountain uh, social housing all to be demolished, and what are they going to turn into? Probably a, a parking lot for the elite to go and uh, watch the the games that uh, or whatever goes on at uh, the uh, park there. I wonder where Rich Coleman is going to put all these people in the downtown east side. You know, there's I don't know how many people there must be, but I, I understand that the charities uh, at least uh, uh, bunk about fifteen hundred people a night, and and each uh, person uh, the government provincial government pays uh, you know in this case a Sally Ann or the Catholic charities, something like $90 per person per night, 1500 times 90 bucks is an awful lot of money. They could put every one of those people up in a pretty nice hotel room for that kind of money and feed them yeah. properly as well. Instead of uh, when they go out the door in the morning, they get a McDonald's voucher for 7 bucks. Unbelievable. And they want to shoot them up with vaccines. Maybe I think uh, some people might yeah, be right when they suggest that all of this is to do with population control and genocide. <laughs> well, it, it's interesting that the, the, the way they're hyping 2010, of course, is you know, people come in 2010, go to the celebratory sites or go into, into the stadiums and breathe on each other. Yeah. And at the same time, you know, if, if the hype about H1N1 is correct, and let, let's just assume that, that for a moment that it's no worse than the regular flu, still – we all know that going into crowded conditions is probably not the best place to avoid it. And so now we're, ta- we're talking about bringing as many people as possible into, into closed venues and into close proximity with each other in the worst possible weather that this province offers uh, in the worst, worst time of year and have everyone sneeze on each other for, for a couple of weeks. Well, that, that, if, you, if you wanted to spread a pandemic, I can't, can't imagine a much better way to do that. That's, that's so it. Uh, thank, you, thank you, Van Ock. Concentrate it right here in Vancouver. And, and then course, send it all over the globe. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, exactly. Then, everyone goes home and take, take, take your H1N1 and whatever else with you. Yeah. Well, I'm going to take yeah. off for the West Kootenays. <laughs> it's about as far as away I can afford to go to get away from this yeah. schmozzle. You know, it's funny. Uh, yeah. I noticed, too, they're, they're, they haven't developed a vaccine for hepatitis C since we were on the subject of vaccines. Uh, have you heard anything about that? They've got one no, for hep B and hep A. And, you know, I, I came across... Uh, uh, references in a book written by Dr. Emanuel Cheraskin. He, he headed up the, the Department of Oral Medicine at the University of Alabama until he retired, and I guess it's been about 20 years now since he retired. But uh, he mentioned a study that was done in uh, the Osaka region of Japan uh, where people were getting blood transfusions after major surgery and coming down with serum hepatitis, which I understand is the same thing as hepatitis C. You know, blood-borne hepatitis, right? And uh, the uh, the two hospitals they commissioned this doctor uh, Murata to do an assessment. Why? Because oh, only fifteen percent of the patients who had to have blood transfusions were coming down with this serum hepatitis, and so this Murata he went in and looked at the the dietary intake of, uh, of these people. And one thing he found is that Japanese are big on taking vitamins. And in this case, he found that those who didn't get hep C after, uh, or serum hepatitis after a, uh, 
a blood transfusion, we're taking on something like anywhere from uh, 3,000 milligrams of vitamin C or more a day. So he came back to the hospital and said, give your, your patient scheduled for surgery and likely blood transfusion uh, something like uh, three to 6,000 milligrams of vitamin C a day for, uh, for several days before surgery and then for a couple of weeks after. They eliminated serum hepatitis. And that was, okay. that, was, that was written up uh, in a, a Tokyo University Press around 1975. There was an international, or what they call an intersectional conference of, uh, of uh, virology and, uh, and biology in Tokyo, and uh, the paper was read there. And interesting enough, when I've cited it, oh, it gets poo-pooed and shot down, you know, as uh, uh, they didn't do this, they didn't do that. Well, what else could they do? You know, you have people taking vitamin C and, uh, or not enough, and you have people that are taking a lot, and you get a different result. I read they're working on, a, on an HIV vaccine. They're working on a vaccine for diarrhea for, for travelers. Uh, there's all sorts of new vaccines coming out. Just from your, your research on these adjuvants and the long-term health effect, how long do you think it would take for us to start seeing any of these neurological signs of neurological, neurological damage in people that are taking these ongoing it, it, vaccines? It's really difficult to say. Um, in, in mice, and again, mice are mice and people are people, so it's, it's not necessarily equivalent. Uh, but in the mice, it took weeks to months to, to manifest. And that was with fairly subtle behavioral testing. You know, we, we never reached a stage with the mice where they were profoundly uh, disabled. Uh, we wanted to see the early phases. And we did, but you actually have to do fairly subtle behavioral tests. And, and, and mice, like people, are very good at, at, at doing adaptive behaviors to, to uh, adjust to changes that, that might be occurring. So we, we could pull them out because we have very sensitive tests. And then, of course, we did the histological analyses of the, of the brains and spinal cords, and we could see it uh, as, it, as it, it ha what had happened up to that point. With humans, you might not see it for a long time. Uh, it, would, it would be probably very subtle. Uh, but... And, and, and that's, the, that's the problem, they, that the, the time frame might be very long. That, I mean, certainly some people are coming down with adverse reactions very quickly. They're mostly non-neurological, but some of them are, apparently are. But it may be a, a, a dosage issue, or maybe uh, some people interact with these things very differently based on some sort of genetic propensity for, for clearance of the, uh, the adjuvants. Um, it could be decades. And if it's decades, then you have created potentially this this population that is now, now moving forward with an underlying condition that won't be apparent for a long time. And frankly, 20 years from now, if a lot of people who get the shot now show up with neurological diseases, we'll never be able to pin it on the vaccine. No, they'll, the they'll be out the from epidemiology, under. Yeah. Well, they'll be, they'll be out from under, and they, they know full well that. And the, the epidemiology is, is, you know, given the number of factors in our, in our environment, you cannot say that this one thing you did 20 years ago was the causal factor. It's, it's impossible. And yeah. they know it, and the science knows it. And look how long it took to, to prove causality between smoking and lung cancer. Yeah. So it's, it's going to take an awful long time to do that. And, of course, if, if, but if it's true, the, the, down, the, the flip side of that is if it's true, you could all of a sudden have an awful lot of neurological disease victims that you wouldn't be able to prove where it came from, but you'd still have to treat the same way with Gulf War syndrome. We still can't say for sure it was the AVA vaccine or anything else, but all of a sudden an awful lot of people who deployed or didn't even deploy in the first Gulf War became ill with this, this multi-system disorder. You've and heard you of, still end up with a medical, medical emergency. Yeah, you've heard of this uh, infant diarrhea caused by a, caused by a so-called rotavirus? Uh, exactly. Wyeth apparently uh, had developed a... Uh, uh, a rotavaccine called, and they, they label the 
as I think it was Rotashield, and they got it approved in, uh, I guess it was 1998. In 1999, they had to take it off the market because uh, instead of preventing infant diarrhea, it was actually causing uh, intestinal blockages, in some cases requiring surgery, and they had to take it off the market. Now, uh, infant diarrhea is not a real big problem, in, say, in the United States or North America for that matter, but big problem in countries like uh, Africa and I guess uh, in other areas of the middle, uh, you know, Southeast Asia and that. And, uh, but within a couple of years, the Merck company comes out with their version of this vaccine called Rotatech. And uh, it was even worse. Not only did it cause uh, infant blockages, it uh, required uh, surgery and there were some deaths. And it was, uh, got a black box warning and that was all. So why it was less fortunate than Merck in getting this vaccine or keeping it on the market. And what gets me about these, uh, these vaccines is in the case of the, the rotavirus, and there's a fellow by the name of, I think it's Paul Offit, O-F-F-I-T. He's big on developing vaccines. He's probably made about uh, $29 million over the last decade or so developing vaccines for the Centers for Disease and for his uh, vaccine employers. And he's on the committee that approves these vaccines too, which, of course, big conflict of interest that nobody seems to be concerned about. But he combined the virus from uh, the gut of, I guess it was a Indian rhesus monkey, with a virus uh, from that of a, of a human infant. And this, this is his uh, answer for a vaccine against this form of infant diarrhea. Isn't that genetic manipulation when you start combining a virus from one species with a virus from the human species? I, I would view it so, but again, I'm, this is not my area of expertise. Yeah. So, uh, and, and I'm sure some people would consider it absolutely skookum, uh, best possible science, and amazing stuff you can do, and maybe it mm-hmm. is. Uh, I, I truly don't know. Yeah, another example is, of course, Baxter Pharmaceutical, who has a patent on the H1N1 vaccine. Uh, they've been fooling around uh, with combining a, uh, again, uh, we're talking about a, uh, a flu virus from uh, the gut of, uh, I think, again, another uh, rhesus monkey and combining it with a, a cold virus from a human and incubating the results in the tissues of caterpillar. So uh, other than the fact that they had problems when they were incubating uh, the smallpox and actually the polio vaccine in the diseased tissues of the African green monkey, and we ended up with simian virus 40 showing up in the, in the tumors of uh, people who subsequently who had had the vaccine and subsequently developed these tumors or cancers. And they don't know whether SV40 is actually uh, causing the cancer or is just merely a fellow traveler. But what about insect viruses uh, if you're going to be incubating vaccines in the, in the tissues of, of, in this case, caterpillars? It, it just boggles the mind what they're up to. Well, the use of a model system is often the the model system is only good as good as as it insofar as it duplicates the conditions in the in the animal you're trying to study or or in this case humans. And, so how would you know a caterpillar's got something or other? <laughs> well, yeah, well, exactly. Um, I mean, there there may be reasons at a cell biology level that that they would be an appropriate uh, an appropriate system. I, I I haven't seen the literature. I can't really comment. It it may not be as funny as it sounds. It may be okay, but again, yeah. How how much would a caterpillar a type type one whatever type cell you know mirror what what might be happening in human I I I don't know it, it might be it might be fine 
Yeah. And it might also not. I think of something like army caterpillars, of which I've seen uh, huge migrations of these things uh, crossing uh, the, the highway and causing skidding conditions or crossing railway tracks and the uh, engines can't get traction because of this mess of caterpillars. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they're going to use those. It's unbelievable what, what, uh, what they've got into with the so-called biotechnology that they're going into these areas of, uh, of experimentation with different species and then going to put this stuff into human beings. And at a profit, too. Well, don't forget the profit. The profit's the important part. That's, that's the big issue. Yes, and there's money to be made from the after effects of the vaccines, if there are any. Well, remember, a lot of these companies are actively looking for neurological disease uh, treatments. So I suppose the, 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 the win-win here is that if, if there were to be a spillover and they actually created some of it, well, somewhere down the line, 20 years from now, they might well have some sort of treatment that would be palliative, uh, in, at, at least in, in, in nature, and they could say, well, it's sort of a windfall that we've now got a lot more Alzheimer's disease. So it just so happens we have a uh, another drug that can uh, can improve your cognitive function. Mm-hmm. Lucky for you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not suggesting that's what, that's what they're doing, but uh, I, I would imagine that they're uh, that some of their marketing people are, are certainly looking at it as as a potential uh, uh, window of opportunity in the future. Well, the big hype about biotechnology is all the things they're going to be able to do. And the big thing was that they were going to improve the nutritional value of uh, certain foods, uh, big crops like rice. And the best thing they could come up with was with golden rice, uh, which is uh, a rice that has been genetically manipulated to have content of beta carotene that it otherwise wouldn't have. And it hasn't gone anywhere because you'd have to eat several bowls of rice a day to get an, an amount of beta carotene that might do you some good. And that, that's the only thing they've done with biotechnology that might be considered beneficial in terms of improving human nutrition. But everything else has been doing uh, has been to genetically manipulate crops to be resistant to uh, herbicides in the case of, you know... Soybean. Soybean and the corn or canola oil. Unbelievable. Yeah. You know, I mean, they, they've, they've failed in all those areas... And, uh, but they're riding on the promise that they're going to improve human nutrition uh, by uh, making the plants produce more of the nutrients that we need to have a healthy body. Well, I think uh, body. The, In in that case, I think the failure of the system was allowing uh, organisms to be patented in the first place. Yeah, well, that's the other thing. Is I see that there was something in the news not too long ago that a patent was struck down that can't patent uh, anything relative to... Uh, uh, humans, uh, anyways, as far well, as... It, human genes, I suppose. Yeah. But Monsanto soybean is, is patented. Yeah, and cotton is another one. Anyways, that's off topic, but... Uh, but it's still to do with uh, genetic manipulation, which is all part of the vaccine uh, situation. Chris, what would you say to people that are sitting on the fence right now, not sure if, if they should get the vaccine or not? I know you said I'm that. Not a, Sorry, go ahead. I'm just saying I'm not a medical doctor. Obviously, I'm not going to give medical advice. Uh, I would certainly not take the vaccine myself. I won't give it to my daughter. Um, and when my friends ask me, I suggest they go look at the Glasgow SmithKline insert if they have scientific background and, and decide for themselves. There's a, there was a good article by Alan Casals in the recent issue of Common Ground, and I think it has a lot of good 
sage uh, recommendations for people to consider when they were thinking about it. And certainly, people should not be panicked into doing anything. We know, for example, that there's not enough vaccine right now available. They're asking everyone to wait their turn in that. And some people will, if, even if they want it, will have to wait for weeks to even maybe, maybe even a month. So given that, people have time to calm down, take a deep breath, and go and look a little bit more deeply into whether or not this particular virus is as, as dangerous as people say and whether the vaccine is actually a solution to it. And now my recommendation would be for everyone to take a deep breath and, and, and look a little more deeply into the issues. Mm-hmm. That's good advice. And they're also saying that it could mutate and that's another reason to get vaccinated now. But it could mutate and become totally ineffective too. Exactly. But if it does mutate, wouldn't you need a new, a new vaccine? Yes. And, but that's a question that I find very intriguing. Uh, do viruses really mutate uh, once they're in, in your body, uh, or they, do they just merely replicate, as opposed to vaccines that can be manipulated uh, in a Petri dish and cause uh, to be mutating? What's your uh, thoughts on that? I, again, this is outside my area of expertise. Uh, you'd, you'd have to get an immunologist in here or a virologist. But, yeah. uh, but don't you it, think those are good pop- questions? I think I think they're excellent questions. All these questions are excellent questions. Uh, I just, uh, alas, you've 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 exhausted my knowledge. <laughs> well, I guess on that basis, we're going to have to close it down. So I turn it over to Andrew. This is Croft Woodruff, and thank you very much, Chris Shaw, for joining thank us you, uh, today. And uh, I really admire you and your efforts on the various fronts that you're working on. And I can only say good luck to you. I'm rooting for you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Andrew. And that's it for another exciting episode of Health Empowerment News with Croft Woodruff. If you have any comments on this episode, please leave them on the show notes at foodsarenotdrugs.com or any episode for that matter. Your comments are welcome. And if you have any suggestions or requests for a future episode, send me an email at andrew at foodsarenotdrugs.com. Or maybe if you want to be a guest on the show, any suggestions are welcome. And we'll see you again next week. My name is Andrew McGivern, signing out for our Health Empowerment News with Kraft Woodruff.